Evening. We'll be hanging out in First Peter chapter one. So if you'd like to get a head start, you can turn in your Bibles or turn your app on, however you get there. Uh, growing up, I always thought the gospel was, the, I guess the reason for the gospel is just to save my soul from hell. And so it's kind of been an enjoyable experience for me to be here and um, go through this sermon series, just listen, um, because it's reminding me and showing me that the gospel is not just good fire insurance, but it's also what should inform and shape our lives. And so that's been encouraging for me. And, you know, because of what Jesus has done for us, it's freed us up to live in a transformed way. And so it doesn't matter if we're rich or poor, like the fellow on the video was saying. Um, we can have a six-figure income and have a cottage up north. It doesn't matter if we're happy, life's good for us, or we're sad and things aren't going our way. It doesn't matter what state of our life, but every rhythm and beat of life should all be shaped by our response to this gospel. And so tonight, my little sliver of living that I've been assigned to share, you, share with you on is uh, suffering. It's a subject of suffering. And so obviously this is not a subject that we relish or even enjoy talking about, um, but it is not beyond that shaping influence of the gospel. And it's uh, certainly not beyond the joy and the hope of the gospel. So I'm a third and fourth grade Sunday school teacher, and uh, we keep things simple downstairs, okay? And so that's what you're going to get to is just some simple stuff. I'm not a deep theologian. Um, so my goal tonight is to give you three compelling reasons for joy in this passage, two encouragements in the midst of your trials, and then thrown in at the end for free, three miscellaneous comforts for your soul, okay? So that's where we're going tonight. We'll go ahead and dive into the text, and we'll just read it. So we'll start verse 3, and it's going to be uh, through verse uh, 9 for now. So here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So in this section, it's pretty much the beginning of the book, Peter's giving some encouragement for those going through 
trials. And we'll kind of look at verse 1 and 2 a little bit later to see more of a context of who he's actually writing to. But I love how Peter frames his counsel to what it says in verse 1, the elect exiles. I think it's interesting. He got to the part where he talks about trials, but he kind of sandwiches it between hope and inexpressible joy. I think that's an interesting way to talk about trials. And so Peter gives us our first compelling motivation for joy, and he does this by clearly describing the good news that we have. So the first compelling reason for joy is found in verse uh, 3. yeah, he, Peter starts by, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins with this exclamation of praise to God for this good news that continues in this verse. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So keeping to my promise for simplicity, this is the good news that we should all know, that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and separated from God, bearing God's wrath on us, Jesus bore God's wrath toward us to its end, so that God then turned his wrath towards us into favor. And that is great news, that by the death of Jesus on the cross, he's redeemed us through his blood, given us the forgiveness of sins, and so now, by repentance and belief, we are justified by faith in Christ. We have eternal life through his resurrection from the dead. So this is, this is the gospel, okay? And this is where Peter starts. And he says that through this gospel, we're born again to this living hope. And that's good news. So it's interesting, though, simple mind as I have, why start a letter to exiles with the gospel? Well, as we talked about at the very beginning, the gospel is what should shape our response to everyday life. And so it provides us with this necessary context um, in order to you know, view what's happening to us right now through the lenses of eternity. So that's compelling reason number one, the gospel. Number two is that we are born again, it says, to an inheritance an inheritance. That's a good word. I don't know if any of you have received one. I have not. It would be nice, but inheritance. What is this inheritance? Well, it's described, it says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Sounds pretty good to me. I like those descriptions, but it doesn't answer exactly what this inheritance is. And I don't know exactly, but I think it's not just eternal life that's waiting for us in heaven, kept in heaven for us, but I think it's this whole package deal that's waiting for us in heaven, kept in heaven for us. And I don't know about you, but that's supposed to motivate us to joy. And if I had to be honest with you, I think sometimes an inheritance kind of falls bland on my ears. I mean, I know it's a good thing. I know being born again to a living hope. I mean, I I need to be excited about that. It should motivate me to joy and having an inheritance. Um, But you know, 
I'm pretty excited and happy with things I experience here on earth with my five senses. Um, I love hamburgers, especially the big juicy ones you have to hold with two hands. And when you take a bite, half of what you bite stays on your face. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff I love, you know? A good cup of coffee in the morning. I mean, that just, get, I, I'm, I'm satisfied with that. I love that. Hearing my kid's belly laugh, I don't know about you guys, it just brings a smile to anybody's face. Going on vacation with my kids, doing those things. I mean, I love those things, and it's tangible for me. I'm able to experience them with five senses, and so it's one of these things that I know that I love and I can long for because I've experienced it and I know how good it is. But it's kind of hard for us with these things that born again to a living hope, the salvation. I mean, we experience that, but it's not been fully realized. And we have this inheritance, which if you're kind of like me, you may not view that as a very compelling reason to have joy in the midst of trials. So I've brought some friends along tonight who are smarter than me. This guy's name is Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he wrote a sermon or preached a sermon called Heaven, a World of Love. And he gives a beautiful description here of parts of what this inheritance will look like. It's a really long quote, and so I'm going to kind of deviate it here, but it's really cool. Okay, it says, But oh, what rest is there in that world in which God of peace and love fills with his own gracious presence? and in which the Lamb of God lives and reigns, filling it with the brightest and sweetest beams of his love, where there is nothing to disturb or offend, and no being or object to be seen that is not surrounded with perfect amiableness and sweetness, where the saints shall find and enjoy all that they love, and so be perfectly satisfied. This is sounding pretty good. Where there's no enemy and no enmity, but perfect love in every heart and to every being, where there is perfect harmony among all the inhabitants. I don't know about your house, but we don't have that. No one envying another, but everyone rejoicing in the happiness of every other. Where, there, all, there is, where all their love is humble and holy and perfectly Christian, without the least carnality and purity, love's always mutual, reciprocated to the full. There's no hypocrisy, dissembling, perfect simplicity, sincerity, there's no treachery, unfaithfulness, or inconstancy. And he goes on to describe all these things, including pesky, lippy salespeople on the phone. They're not there. Okay? Not quite. But then the last portion of this I want to read, it says, Every soul there is as a note in some concert of delightful music that sweetly harmonizes with every other note and all together blend in the most rapturous strains in praising God and the Lamb forever. And so all help each other to their utmost to express the love of the whole society to its glorious Father and Head and to pour back love into the great fountain of love whence they are supplied and filled with love and blessedness and glory. And thus they will love and reign in love and in that godlike joy that it is blessed that is its blessed fruit, such as, such as eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath ever entered into the heart of man in this world to conceive. And thus in the full sunlight of the throne, enraptured with joys that are forever increasing and yet forever full, they shall live and reign with God in Christ forever and ever. And so, I don't know about you, but for me, I need to let that sink in. That's 
what our eternal inheritance is going to be like. Just a little snapshot in beautifully penned words by Jonathan Edwards. Enraptured with joys that are forever increasing and yet forever full. That's amazing. We're not going to be disappointed by this inheritance. And so if you need some help imagining what this is going to be like in order for it to be a compelling motivation for joy, as I need that, I highly recommend his sermon. The third piece of good news that is motivating us to joy is that we are born again. I'm sorry, to those who are born again, is that we are being guarded through God's power. And this is an interesting phrase here. Um, Let's see here. To an inheritance, this is verse 4, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you who are born again to the living hope and have this inheritance, you're the one that's being guarded by God's power through faith. It's interesting. Now, I have to let you in on a secret. I don't know exactly what that means, all the details, okay? Different translations put it different ways. The NIV says shielded. NASB says protected by God's power. And I I think the essence of what Peter is saying here can be understood actually by the lyrics of the song that we sang at the end of the morning service. He will hold me fast. Um, I read just two verses here. It says, those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. So we, who are being talked about here, the born again, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in that last time, I think that song does a good job of summarizing perhaps the intent and essence behind that phrase. So a quick review here. So we have three compelling motivations for joy. We're born again to a living hope. We have this inheritance that is imperishable and unfading. It's undefiled and it's kept in heaven for us who believe in Jesus. And we are guarded by God's power. So these three Solid reasons for joy in trials. Verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice. The this is what we just got done talking about. The living hope, the inheritance, and guarded by God's power. And so, in this we rejoice. We have joy in those things. And so now we come to the part where Peter is actually talking about these trials that these elect exiles are experiencing in the various regions of Asia Minor. I think it's interesting even how Peter talks about this. He uses some pretty interesting words. It says in verse uh, 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. And we just got done talking about 
eternal things, listing these reasons for joy, this living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus, this inheritance. I think it's interesting that Peter contrasts the trials that are a little while with this hope that we have that's eternal. And I think that's a noteworthy um, phrase. These trials will soon end. So what I'd like to focus on now is this phrase, if necessary. Just give a little attention to this. I think it's helpful to understand what if necessary means, kind of in the whole scheme or uh, context of this passage. And uh, I'm sure the heresy police are out in force tonight, especially since a young buck is up here teaching. And that's great. I appreciate that. I'm not a, not a Bible scholar by any means, just trying to read the book and figure out what it says. So um, I'm willing to be corrected on this, okay? Um, I'm not trying to lead you astray, but I think it's helpful to kind of dive into this. Um, all right, so this is, <laughs> this is verse 6. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. I think you can actually read it a couple different ways. I think another way is correct that reads this way. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, you have been grieved by various trials, if necessary. <clears throat> so I think what we can rightly infer here is that if we have been grieved by various trials, then they were necessary. And I think that even if you could Greek argue with me in Greek and win, that uh, maybe I'd still be right, that our God's purposeful. Maybe we can just come to an agreement on that. Um, that these trials are not just dished out willy-nilly just to see you squirm. Like, that's not the point. They have a point, and they are necessary. And I think that's a very helpful thing uh, to understand. And I think maybe this is a helpful way to illustrate it. I recently finished up my bachelor's degree through Liberty University, and I have a number of uh, different sources of credits over the years, and so basically what I did was I sent all my transcripts to um, Liberty, and they looked at all of my transcripts and came up with the credits that they would accept, and they came up with this thing called a degree completion plan audit, and basically it just, like I said, listed all the credits that they accepted, and then they came up with all the courses that I had to take. And so I was able to go there and look at these courses, and some of them I was more excited to take than others. And I remember one course that um, is a good example of the ones that I didn't really want to take, and it was, it was called Fundamentals for Successful Online Learning, I think. And the, the irony of this is I was given this course to take after I had already successfully completed some online courses. And so... I didn't have a very good attitude about this. In fact, um, I thought it's kind of stupid that I had to spend the time and money taking this course, teaching me things that I obviously already knew because I successfully completed online courses just prior to this. But this is the key. What got me through was the realization that this was necessary in order for me to complete the degree. 
So I think in the same way, though, you know, I was grieved by having to take this course for a little while. You know, we too are grieved by trials in this life, but such a comfort to know (laughs) that they're determined to be necessary by the foreknowledge of a good God. And I think that's such comfort in your trials. They are not meaningless or purposeless. So that, verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so far we've seen three solid reasons, hopefully compelling reasons, for joy and trials. We're born again to a living hope. We're born again to this inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading. It's kept in heaven with your name on it. And we're guarded by God's power. And we've seen two encouragements in the midst of trial. They're just for a little while. They're contrasted with our eternal glorious bliss in heaven, this inheritance. And they are necessary, meted out by a good God for you. I'm sure you're familiar with this story. Um, This version of the story is told by um, Michael Bleeker at the Village Church. And uh, he tells this story of uh, a guy named Horatio Gates Spafford. I'm sure you're familiar with the name. And uh, in in the 1860s, he was a really successful lawyer. And he had a thriving law firm. And he was a rich dude, too. He had lots of uh, property on the shores of Lake Michigan, just kind of north of Chicago. And uh, in 1871, uh, unfortunately, Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over the lantern in her barn. I don't know if this is true, but the great Chicago fire happened, okay? However it happened, it happened. And uh, it wiped out much of his uh, real estate investments. And so, obviously discouraged and um, needing a break from his trials, he decided he's going to go to England with his family. And uh, he had a wife and four daughters, and so... Um, one son actually had already passed away, or a daughter before. Um, and uh, so he was good friends with D.L. Moody, the evangelist and uh, preacher from Chicago, and a big supporter of his. And he was going to be in England preaching. And so he thought, hey, we could kind of merge this vacation with some refreshment for our soul. And he sent his wife and four daughters on the ship uh, to England. And I'm sure you know the story where um, they were in the middle of the ocean in an ironclad ship from England rammed their boat, and it sank in 12 minutes. All four of his daughters died, and his wife barely escaped. She was rescued by sailors, laying unconscious on a plank of um, wood from the ship. And uh, she finally made it to Wales, England, and sent this telegram. I don't even know what that is, but they tell me it's something that communicates something. Um, If I were to contextualize, she sent her husband a text message and said... um, Saved alone, what shall I do? And so he, uh, um, you know, comes as quick as he can and makes the, the ocean voyage to England. And so when the captain of the ship, who knew his story, knew they were over this uh, spot where his daughters had died, he told Horatio, and he went down. And uh, he penned these words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot... There, thou hast taught me to say, 
it is well. It is well with my soul. I personally think that's insanity. <laughs> just four days after losing, or just days after losing four daughters, he writes a hymn that's sharing how there's joy and hope in his soul. It's hard to believe. I don't know how that can be, but I suggest that perhaps it's because Horatio was born again to a living hope and he was thankful and he understood that living hope. He understood the glorious inheritance that was his in Christ and was guarded by God's power. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. I think Horatio demonstrated that. And filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So now we come to the end with time to spare. So you get the freebies, the three miscellaneous comforts for your soul. And I've taken from different parts of the scripture. I'd, <clears throat> I'd like you to walk away from here at least with something to, use and comfort, be comforting to you in your trials that I'm sure you have. Um, I enjoy uh, Matt Chandler, a pastor of the Village Church in Texas. And so I go on his website every once in a while. And uh, it's, Recently I went on there and had the sentence, or two sentences, it was a phrase, and said, um, it's okay to not be okay, it's just not okay to stay there. And I think this is interesting, this whole subject of biblical suffering. I think it comes with some risks. You know, Scripture is pretty specific about how it talks about suffering and trials. And some of the words that it uses, like light and momentary and just a little while. Um, I think sometimes it, it risks, though obviously it doesn't intend to, but to minimize your pain and kind of... I don't know, trivialize your very real suffering. And, uh, you know, perhaps right now, I, I don't know what you're dealing with and maybe what you're struggling with right now, but, you know, you could be in a trial that's overwhelming to you and leading you perhaps even to despair. And I just would love to tell you that that's okay. That's really okay. Um, if you think that you have to suffer or go through a trial all put together in a really laced up and buttoned up way, I'd love to refer you to the Psalms and maybe even Job. Um, there's some really heart emotion that comes out there and that tells you that probably not all the time were they put together and writing hymns of praise to God. In fact, I might even suggest that there's some anger there and there's some confusion and even soul despair. And I'd like to suggest that that's okay. Um, even yeah, David said, Psalm 42, 5, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And again, not a deep theologian, but I imagine that's because his soul was in despair. So, Psalm 35, 3, it says, this is David talking to God, saying, Say to my soul, I am your salvation. So, 
David's asking God to preach to his soul to say, hey, soul, I'm your salvation. And why would David need that? Well, maybe because his soul has this tendency that probably you and I have, at least I do, to find my soul's satisfaction and joy in something other than salvation from God and joy in God. And so that's okay to be there. And I just want to encourage you that Scripture uses those words, light, momentary, little while, because when you compare the glorious salvation that God has provided for us and that imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and kept in heaven for you inheritance, our trials and suffering really are, in reality, light and momentary. And if you have a problem with that, I, and if your trials only bring you to despair and leave you reeling, then perhaps some examination of our hearts is in order to know where is our heart's treasure and where, what, what do we treasure in love. Um, again, I, I'm just repeating what I read. I don't claim to be an authority, but um, if that heavenly inheritance is our prime mover, our trials, though devastating, won't bring us to despair. And maybe even to despair for a little while, but where the plane always lands is in anticipation of that hope and joy of what is to come because of what we have in the gospel. So, bottom line, being wordy, it's okay for it to hurt. It's supposed to, I think. And to express those emotions, even if you raise a fist to God, I think he can handle that. And... I think it's okay for you to really expose what's in your heart at that time. But where the plane needs to land is in accordance with what the gospel states, and that is that we have hope and joy to come. So hopefully that's a comfort to your soul. And then the last two things. We, we actually don't belong here. Um, Peter says in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And uh, I had to look this up. It's just modern-day Turkey, some areas there. So these, uh, these exiles are elect, which I think is very interesting. They're elect exiles. <laughs> that means that where their own two feet are right now is not where they belong. And they are elect, they are chosen by God to be his kids through salvation of Jesus. I just think that's interesting. Um, that's true for us tonight, too. Like where our own two feet are here, like that's not our permanent home. And so that's good news. I like reading G.K. Chesterton. He has a book called Orthodoxy. It's a pretty short little read, but he says in there, but all the optimism of the age had been false and disheartening for this reason that it had always been trying to prove that we fit into the world. The Christian optimism is based on the fact that we do not fit into this world. Isn't that cool? I mean, we're, we're, we don't belong here. And so I think sometimes it's, it gets frustrating because we long for things to be as they are in this world, but that's not a reality for this world. That's a reality for the next world. And so that means we should not put our hope in this life it can be a disappointment. But there is a living hope and an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. And then the last freebie is that wherever you are, 
you are there for a purpose. And I'd just like to call your attention, this is verse 2. So basically talking about these elect exiles that are in dispersion throughout this region. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I think that's cool. I think that's significant. That these believers are not there from some random act of chaos but by the foreknowledge of God, which means he's in complete control. I think that's cool. I mean, actually, it could be not cool, depending on how you read it, because if you're like me, at times, if God's in control and he knew about this, then how come he didn't change it? You know, so we could, we could try to um, pin uh, God not being good on his foreknowledge. But we have a good God, and uh, he does things because he's good. In Psalms it says, uh, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. And so, um, yeah. All right. I'll end with this. John Piper, he says, not only is all of your affliction momentary, and not only is all of your affliction light, in comparison to eternity and the glory there, all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that suffering. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It is doing something. It is not meaningless. Of course you can't see what he's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you've got cancer at 40, or when your car, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes her out, don't say it is meaningless. It is not. It is working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, do not lose heart. But take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and cared for. Another Chesterton quote, he says, joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. And I think that's the main point. We have much joy because of the gospel. So may you have that joy and may you show it to the world as you go through hard times. Um, I guess we'll pray. God, we're grateful because you're good. Help us to know how good you are. Thanks for your good gifts that you give to us. We don't deserve them. I pray that all of those good gifts, your gospel, your inheritance, the fact that you intimately care for us and guard us by your power through faith for that salvation that's going to be revealed. I just pray that uh, all of those things would shape our responses to the rhythms of life. That we would be willing to show that gigantic secret to the world of the joy that you've given us through Jesus. Amen. <clears throat>